The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. While technology undoubtedly makes our lives simpler, more productive, and connects us to other people and places in ways that we couldn't have imagined even a few short years ago, it has a dark side. Technology is full of vulnerabilities that leave us open to having our lives monitored like never before. And for most of us, well, we only really give cursory thought to protecting ourselves beyond the basic protections that are offered by the companies and apps we use and trust on a daily basis. We know that technology is used for surveillance by states, by companies, and by individuals, often with devastating and far-reaching implications. My guest today, Eva Gelperin, has spent her career working in the cybersecurity industry and is currently the director of the Threat Lab at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where she focuses on protecting vulnerable groups like activists, journalists, and victims of domestic abuse from online surveillance around the world. To that end, she has written privacy and security training materials and published research on malware in Syria, Vietnam, and Kazakhstan. Eva has also been at the forefront of the fight against stalkerware, engaging governments, software companies, app platforms, and antivirus providers in preventing the use of stalkerware. When she is not collecting new and exotic malware, she practices aerial circus arts and learning new languages. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Eva. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'm excited to chat with you today. First of all, before we get into the depths of things, I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? I think that it's it's a surprisingly complicated problem because it's very tempting to do good in a way that earns you accolades, that gets you attention, that, that gives you applause, and not to worry about whether or not that good is actually effective or helping people. And that is, is a very scary trap. And so I think that for doing good, one of the sort of my, my North stars is, uh, is metrics. Actually measure, measure what you're doing and see whether or not you're doing the right thing. Because often the answer is no, you are doing the thing which is easy or you are getting the thing, doing the thing which gets you applause and not the thing which is actually good. Because if it was easy, more people would be doing it. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think about that and particularly relevant to our upcoming conversation is the internet and how easy the internet has made it for us to think that we're doing good. Click a few buttons on a purchase and you can have that, you know, that rush of, of feel good hormones that you gave to an organization whilst buying your brand new MacBook or, or whatever it is that you've bought. 
And often you, you really have no idea who you've just donated to, but it's been very easy for you to do that. And I think it absolves us somewhat of the responsibility to critically think about what doing good means and, and whether in fact it is good. Certainly. There's a lot of criticism of, uh, of what is called collectivism in the activist world, you know, just you know, send, send this angry email to your congressperson or, uh, you know, click on this change.org petition or give a dollar or two to this organization. And on one hand, that sort of activism is very easy to dismiss because it's not very impactful. On the other hand, I work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a membership-based organization, and we have 40,000 members all over the world. And if people did not send us $20 at a time for stickers and t-shirts, I would not have a job. So I'm not going to pretend that that stuff doesn't have an impact, but only that that is the lowest impact stuff that you can do. That is the background noise of doing good. So how would you say you express the practice of doing good in your daily life? I am a creature motivated largely by anger. <laughs> outrage. Yeah. I feel a lot of outrage in the world. And um, a, a lot of that just goes back to really, really hating bullies and being very concerned about inequality and um, inequalities of power. And so a lot of the ways in which I express my doing good has to do with uh speaking truth to power with punching up always rather than punching down and with uh, helping to empower the people who are pushed to the margins instead of the people who are already at the center. And I try to keep that in mind whenever I, I try to figure out, you know, what, what is the good I could do here? Has the idea of kind of doing good through the work that you do always been a theme or a motivator for what you do? and the career choices you've made? I haven't always been an activist. I've worked for the Electronic Frontier Foundation for about 13 years now, so like a fairly long time. And I've always done some sort of volunteering and some sort of outreach and you know, gone to protests and clicked on things. But fundamentally, uh, sort of turning my life around so that instead of working in tech, I work specifically in the area of you know, doing good, was something that I really only started doing a little more than a dozen years ago. And did you ever imagine that you would be focusing a lot of that work on the issue of cyberstalking? Not until a few years ago, no. <laughs> and there was a tweet that started all of that, right? Yes. So I had, uh, I, I was working mostly on, uh, on APTs, which is sort of our, our way of saying state actors. When states spy on their political opponents or uh, journalists, or as it turns out, scientists or human rights lawyers, stuff like that. So I spent a lot of time traveling all over the world, teaching uh, you know, journalists and activists and human rights lawyers and such, how to protect themselves from government surveillance. And it turned out that one of the people with whom I was doing this work turned out to be a serial rapist. And when he was outed as a serial rapist, uh, there was an interview with one of his alleged victims, uh, I think in Vice News New Zealand. And I read the interview and what really struck me about it was that his victims were very scared. 
And specifically, the thing that they were scared about was they were frightened that this guy was very technical. And so they were worried that he was going to hack their phones or he was going to hack their computers. And apparently he had, you know, repeatedly threatened to do so. And I was so outraged. I was so angry that I tweeted that if you were a woman who has been sexually assaulted by a hacker and you're concerned about the safety of your devices, you should let me know and I would make sure you would get like a full forensic workup. 10,000 retweets later, I had started a project. Wow. I was not quite ready for that level of response and I spent the next two and a half years uh, working with uh, with the people who reached out to me, who were concerned about their about their accounts, who were concerned about their uh, about their devices, who were concerned about uh, what we call stalkerware, the software that you can uh, sort of surreptitiously install on devices, uh, and also you know probably the most important thing uh, is you know figuring out how to do your your very basic threat modeling, just figuring out what do you want to protect and who do you want to protect it from. I mean, I'm interested in the logistics of responding to 10,000 tweets or, you know, the, the volume of, of inquiries that you would have received for help. How did you handle that? I am not going to pretend that I have gotten back to every single one of the people who have reached out to me because uh, that would be dishonest. I started seeing patterns in the concerns of the people who were reaching out to me. And I started thinking about how... Uh, we could make changes in the security industry and in the technology industry to account for the kinds of concerns that people uh, in domestic abuse situations have. And I started working towards changing the way that companies see stalkerware as like a semi-legitimate thing. You know, there must be, there's some legitimate uses for it, therefore we have to continue to allow it. Bullshit. So I went after the stalkerware companies. I went after the antivirus companies for not recognizing stalkerware as uh, potentially unwanted programs. Uh, I went after Google for continuing to allow stalkerware companies to advertise so that if you enter, you know, how do I spy on my girlfriend or boyfriend in a Google search, a product will come up, which is really extremely creepy. So I spent some time working on that. And I've also spent a lot of time talking to technologists and to people who are building IoT devices and, uh, and user interface about how to deal with the domestic abuse model as a, as a threat. Because a lot of the time about what's safe online, when we talk about what's legitimate access to a person's account or to a person's device, Information security practitioners believe that if you have the login and you have somebody's password and you have physical access to the device, that's legitimate access, right? Uh, Except for that in the case of so many abuse situations, they have that level of access. And figuring out how to lock somebody out is very, very hard if the user interface isn't already there. (laughs) Well, I I read in an article that you were featured in where you said full access to somebody's phone is essentially full access to somebody's mind. Absolutely. Uh, This is because we carry a tracking device around in our pockets and it needs to track us in order to talk to the cell phone towers in order to tell us where where it is so that it will continue to work. Uh, We keep all of our contacts 
in our phone. We keep all of our photos in our phone. We keep all of our uh, logins to our social media accounts and to our email in our phone. We have our you know, 2FA messages are sent to our phone. Basically, if it has a login, <laughs> chances are you're logging into it from your phone. And that makes your phone an incredible source of, uh, of very juicy intelligence for an abuser. So can you tell us a little bit more about Stalkerware in the sense of like, who, who are these companies? Who are, who's making it? Why? And is there anything good about the software? No, there's nothing good about the software, but I can tell you that it's largely being made by companies in uh, India and the Netherlands and some in the US. There are probably about half a dozen companies that make this software that are constantly reskinning and rebranding themselves, which makes trying to get rid of stalkerware based entirely on what the stalkerware is called, uh, sort of like playing a game of whack-a-mole. This is not how we do it. But the thing that makes stalkerware different from, say, parental control software. And the thing that makes some parental control software stalkerware is this, consent. Uh, the most important thing when we're talking about uh, software which uh, sends all the information back from your device to some other account or to like a command and control server is consent. If the app is designed to hide from the user and is designed to fool the user into thinking that they are not being surveilled, then it is immoral. Uh, we don't even need to have a conversation about how illegal it is and whether or not you can get away with it and what jurisdiction you're in, because those things are, you know, all different from one place to another and for different types of communications. But I can tell you that it is unethical and it is immoral and I am out to destroy it. I have two children who are just kind of you know, they're in the, the of the age where they very much want their own devices and they have access to devices that are essentially kind of theirs to use, but they're not owned by them. And recently I installed Facebook Messenger for kids on those devices. And, you know, every week I get a rundown of who my children have spoken to on Messenger, how many messages have been sent between my child and those people. And I have to approve all, you know, contact requests and things like that. Now, from my knowledge, it relies on the parent to tell the child that I received this information rather than the app itself communicating that to the child. Is that an example of what you're talking about? That is an example of what I'm talking about. That sort of thing is pretty gross. Uh, leaving it up to the parent to, uh, you know, to do the moral and ethical thing is, uh, is ridiculous. It should be built into the app. It should be not possible to use the app for this sort of immoral and unethical spying. Mm, interesting. Because, I, you know, as a parent, of course, I want to know who they're talking to. But on the other hand, I get to approve who they are able to talk to. So therefore, is that kind of implying that perhaps I don't need to know about the number of messages that they've sent and, and how, de you know, how in depth that contact with that person is. That's entirely up to you. you know, you're a parent and I'm not going to get in the way of parents doing their parenting. I just want it to be informed parenting with the consent of their children. And rather than creating a situation in which uh, the app does all the spying and then it's up to you to have a conversation with your kids about how the spying is working. I would really rather that uh, it be impossible to abuse the app by you know, surreptitiously spying on your kids. 
What are your thoughts about age of consent? Because for example, I know of some very young children that parents have installed this app for, you know, five years old, six years old. Uh, and primarily they use it to send emojis and stickers because, you know, some of them are pre, pre-literate. But what age do you think is possible for an app to provide consent in a way that a child can understand it? The app is not providing consent. Well, well information, sorry. Yes, information. About- yes, yes. The parent is doing the work here. And I think that this is actually very different from child to child. It raises another issue that I've come up against is um, there seems to be a, a phenomenon. I mean, my kids love to watch YouTube and I'm very dubious about that sometimes. And sometimes I'm like, oh, it's, a, it's okay. But something that's come up recently has been this kind of flood of videos where men are hiding in their girlfriend's bedrooms and it's a challenge. Hide in your girlfriend's bedroom for 24 hours undetected and film her. And my eight-year-old daughter was inadvertently exposed to one of these videos through another child. And, you know, of course that raises all sorts of massive issues and, and conversations that need to be had, but it's essentially a form of cyber stalking, I imagine. Oh, it is. The entire you know, purpose of this challenge is that it is a, you know, non-consensually stalking a, uh, your partner, uh, usually it, a person of uh, another gender who is you know, physically weaker than you are. Uh, and you know, so there's sort of an implication of, uh, of violence uh, if, uh, if the you know, person who is being watched does not like it. And these are really serious problems. And while I don't think that there's a whole lot that we can do to stop children from being exposed to these very bad ideas, uh, what we can do is we can sit down and talk to children about, you know, why is this bad? Would you want somebody to be in your house for 24 hours uh, filming you and then putting it online? Would that feel like a betrayal? Would that feel invasive? Would you do that to somebody else? No, you would not do that to somebody else because you wouldn't want them to do it to you. I think what's also scary about it is the normalization of that, you know, particularly for young boys. And I have a son as well. And, you know, it does that plant in young boys' heads that this is okay. You know, these people that they might idolize or watch on YouTube do this to their girlfriends. Therefore, you know, it's okay. It's part of, it's, it's on the internet. It must be okay. You know, <laughs> and kids do think like that until they slowly start to realize, you know, I had a, I had an ongoing conversation with my son about how Wikipedia is not fact. And he's like, no, it is. It is. And it's a slow kind of realization that not everything that you read and watch or consume on the internet is real. But for kids, I think that it's murky. It is. And uh, again, I'm not going to tell parents how to parent, but I will tell them that leaving it up to uh, the to the government and to censorship regimes and to platforms to do their parenting for them is uh, not likely to result in the kind of things that they want as parents. <laughs> Whereas actually having a conversation with your child and you know, keeping track of you know, what it is that they're you know, ingesting and how they're thinking about it and engaging with them in an active way seems like a much better and more ethical way of, uh, of dealing with this problem than just you know, censoring it outright. So 
On StalkAware, what is the liability of these companies if crimes are committed using their software? It depends on who they are, where they are, what the crimes are, what jurisdiction uh, the crimes are committed in, uh, where the software is located, whether or not they're in a you know in the United States. In the United States, it will differ from state to state, where there are different laws about uh, about recording people's locations versus recording the contents of their voice communications versus uh, their text messages. You know, these are all different laws, and we also have different laws about uh, about consent. Uh, having in some states, you cannot record a voice conversation legally without the consent of all parties. And in some places, all you need is the one party consent with the person who's doing the recording. And when you are having a conversation between one state and another state, the state with the more strict laws about consent wins out. So the regulatory and legal landscape is dizzying. Yeah, I imagine. I imagine. Very hard to keep track of. So obviously, you know, you were over a very fast and short period of time exposed to a lot of information that was probably very disturbing and confronting for you to to read. I'm interested in how that impacted you personally because I know from, you know, my work that it's not easy to be immersed in a world where you're reading and writing about and talking about stories of abuse and violence. There are definitely days when all I want is for some part of my day not to be about trauma. Just some part of my day to have nothing to do with sexual assault. That'll really cheer me up. Um, but a lot of what I did was I, I did a lot of reading. I did reading about uh, trauma stewardship, about PTSD, about you know, how to be a good and supportive kind of rock for people who are engaged in, in abusive relationships, which includes a certain amount of tolerance for those people making their own decisions and going back to their abusive relationships. You know, if that is going to destroy you every time, then, uh, then you know, possibly doing support for people in abusive relationships is not for you because it's going to happen a lot. In the same way that if you are supporting people with substance abuse problems, they will almost certainly relapse and they will probably relapse more than once. And you need to sort of accept this as part of the, of the journey rather than, uh, than being completely broken up, up about it every time that it happens. So again, uh, there, there was a lot of reading <laughs> and a lot of trying to sort of separate my work life from my personal life and really trying to give some space to my hobbies and to the things that I enjoy so that when I, when I turn to this work, I am all there. And when I am done with it, I can put it down. Yeah. Yeah. Some good self-care strategies there. <laughs> You're the head of Threat Lab at EFF. Can you tell me a bit more about some of the major projects that you work on there? Sure. Uh, so I run a group called Threat Lab at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and we are a group of researchers uh, whose focus is entirely on um, sort of protecting particularly vulnerable populations. And that could include uh, LGBTQ populations, women, victims of domestic abuse, activists, journalists, basically anyone who, who is running around speaking tr truth to power, 
pissing off the people with power. And uh, some of our latest projects include uh, Crocodile Hunter, which is a uh, piece of, uh, which is uh, software, which was just put out by my uh, colleague, uh, Cooper Quinton, and associate Yamna. And it is designed to help you locate uh, fake 4G base stations. So to find out whether or not the the police or somebody is uh, is spying on your uh, on your cell phone traffic, and we've done a whole bunch of work on you know sort of identifying you know where is the base station, how do you find it, what kind of you know behavior indicates that it is a fake base station as opposed to an actual base station. Uh, so we've done a whole bunch of work on that, and the software is open source, so anybody can can go and get it and download it and use it. Uh, another thing that we recently did was a project called the Atlas of Surveillance. Uh, the Atlas of Surveillance is a sort of map of uh, the different counties in, uh, in the United States, uh, various police districts, and what kind of technologies, surveillance technologies and privacy uh, sort of privacy breaking technologies uh, are being used by those different police departments. So we have it broken up into, you know, drones and, uh, you know, stingrays and all kinds. What is stingrays? Oh, the stingray is uh, is one of those fake base stations that I was just talking about where you uh, you, uh, spy on cell phone traffic. Uh, so we have we have all of these things uh, sort of mapped out, and uh, you can view the interactive map, and you can also contribute to the research that goes into this project, so that we have more and more information about who has what kind of technology, and that really enables uh, people to hold their local uh, police departments accountable in a way that uh, really was not possible before. This might be a naive question but um given you you know you've mentioned that police departments are using this software uh and this technology to conduct surveillance do they not require warrants to listen to people it depends so so i guess what i'm wondering is are they just allowed to listen in general to anybody anywhere it depends, uh, but certainly not. No, they are not allowed to listen in general to everyone everywhere. There, there are rules, but it can be very difficult to tell whether or not those rules are being enforced. Right. And the first step to understanding whether or not those rules are being enforced is to find instances of this kind of surveillance and then use the you know, Freedom of Information Act and other investigative tools to see whether or not... Uh, people were being spied on without a warrant or spied on without a subpoena, or if they had actually gone through all of the proper channels. So do we just come from the base assumption that we are being listened to? I really hesitate to encourage this particular type of uh, view of the world because it leads to to what I call uh, sort of security and privacy nihilism, which is that, uh, well, the government already has everything all the time anyway, so why should I bother trying to hide anything? And that is fundamentally untrue. If privacy was dead, governments wouldn't have to keep trying to kill it all the time. I would be way less busy if privacy was already dead. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about TikTok. Tell me, is it banned or is it proposed to be banned in the U.S.? Currently, there is an executive order that has been signed by President Trump, uh, which 
will go into effect in, I think, something like 40 days, uh, provided that TikTok is not sold to a, uh, to a U.S. buyer, such as Microsoft, which is apparently also something that is being discussed. And there is a lot of debate over how legal this executive order is and whether or not Trump has the power to just ban an app outright. Uh, and it is the position of the Electronic Frontier Foundation that no, no, he doesn't have this right. He doesn't have this right under the uh, under his executive powers and his powers as uh, as the executive. But also, even if he did, that it would be unconstitutional. That this is a violation of the First Amendment, and it is a violation of the First Amendment because code is speech. That is one of the things that EFF has actually worked really hard to establish. Uh, and we have uh, the whole you know, bunch of precedents in court which say that code gets the same protections under the First Amendment as any other types of speech. And so TikTok's right to publish its code is covered by the First Amendment. And uh, the App Store's decision to distribute TikTok is also covered under the First Amendment. Uh, so we think that these are the deeply unconstitutional things to do. The other, the other side of it, essentially forcing the hand of a, a foreign company to sell to a US-based company seems extraordinary. Absolutely. Uh, it's gross. Not to mention that one of the things that, uh, that Trump has said about the possible sale is that if the sale goes through, he expects uh, the United States to get a sort of finder's fee. What? Which is, this, is, this is not how government works. This what? is how mafias work. What? This is, it's extraordinary. It's, it's, wow. Wow. Okay. Aside from the, the ethics and the legality of it, is there a threat with TikTok? Yes. That's actually part of what makes the conversation so complicated and what makes my, my position relatively nuanced. I, in that I am not going to tell you that TikTok is somehow uh, free of the same kinds of problems that you have with other social media apps, that it's not very invasive, that it doesn't have a history of security vulnerabilities. These things are absolutely true. And furthermore, TikTok is different from apps whose uh, you know, manufacturers are, are based in the, in the United States in that because they are in China, they are subject to Chinese law and they are subject to pressure by the Chinese government in a way mm -hmm. that they would not be if they were not physically located in China. Now, TikTok has said that they do not store any US data in China. Having said that, this is exactly what it would say if they were storing American data in China. Yeah, So, and you can't prove that, I imagine. Yeah, it is very difficult to prove one way or the other and there is plenty of reason not to trust them or to, and not to trust the Chinese government. I want to pick up on something you said a little bit earlier, though. You said TikTok, like other social media platforms, has a history of vulnerabilities, shares characteristics of collecting and storing data. Is part of the problem with TikTok kind of related to the anti-China rhetoric that is happening also, you know, in, in terms of diplomatic issues? Is xenophobia behind the TikTok ban? Yes, absolutely, no question. And because it is largely sort of driven by xenophobia, it makes it that much harder to talk about the, the little core of legitimate security issues 
at the bottom of the whole uh, of the whole matter. And there are groups of people who should not be using TikTok because they are concerned about their information going to the Chinese government. If you live in Hong Kong, if you are a Uyghur in Xinjiang, if you are a journalist who is covering you know, Chinese issues and wants to you know, protect your sources, if you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and you're concerned about you know, your uh, intellectual property being spied on, if you're a COVID-19 researcher, if you're US military personnel uh, stationed overseas, those are all groups of people who legitimately have reasons not to use TikTok. But that is not a reason to unilaterally ban an app um, across an entire country. That's how the Chinese internet works. That's not how the American internet works. I would also think that adding children to that list would be Valid? Depends on the children. Depends on who else they're talking to. Depends on how concerned the, you know, you are about the, you know, about the Chinese government having access to data about your children. Uh, and that is a, a decision that every parent should be able to make on their own. The other kind of aspect to that, I was, I was thinking less so than the Chinese government having data on my, ch- my child, but more the vulnerabilities to information and imagery being shared without consent um, and used for child pornography or child abuse purposes, which I've, I've seen a few cases of. Is that something you think is, is particularly of concern with TikTok or really it's just across all these kind of social media apps anyway? I think that's an across the board social media app problem. Anywhere where you know, people are creating their own content, um, you will face this problem. Uh, especially because with uh, with child porn and with sort of child sort of sexualized content, so much of it is about context. So the the things that underaged children will say to each other can get you know taken out of context in a in a way that it may be seen as obscene when it is out of their control, and that's really disturbing. So before we started our call, we were having a, a chat about the state of affairs in the US, both from a COVID-19 perspective, but also from a political perspective with the upcoming election. And something, you know, I've noticed outside of the US is an increasing amount of information being shared on the internet about child sex trafficking uh, and how that information is being shared by people who have, I've never seen share anything to do with that in the past. And I've done a little bit of digging and and discovered that it's part of um, a movement called QAnon. Have you had much to do with this movement through your work at EFF? Well, Rather than, than specifically addressing QAnon, I think it is important to understand that there are a couple of issues that are such hot button issues that they make their way around most of our, our logical thinking. And for many years, uh, one of the best examples of this was a discussion of national security. You can get away with anything as long as you explain that you know, terrorists are using this product to communicate. And another version of this is this product, these methods, these pictures 
this tool is being used by child pornographers or by people who are abusing children. And that because it is being used by bad people for bad purposes, we must get rid of all of it right away. And if you are opposed to that, then clearly you do not care about the safety of children in the same way that if you are opposed to the sort of just endless expansion of the anti-terrorism state, that you must be pro-terrorism. Do you see that, you know, these these issues are kind of co-opted by groups to to promote a political imperative? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, they get used by political groups all the time. They get used in, uh, in policymaking and in advertising, anywhere where you have to convince people to change their minds about something. Uh, one of your options is to just, you know, press the panic button. Mm. Press the panic button over and over and over again so that they don't think that hard. And that's really one of the things that we need to be looking out for as, you know, as media literate people on the internet. I think the the political landscape is is so complex and the use of emotive issues such as child sex trafficking um, or anti-terrorism, you know, are a really clever way to engage people in uh, spreading information, sometimes disinformation and political rhetoric without even realising that they're doing so. Oh, yeah. Again, this is, you know, political memes and discussion works exactly the same way as marketing and advertising. Exactly the same. And that's one of those things that uh, we really learned during the 2016 election. Yeah. I think for me, it's been so um, eye-opening. You know, I've, I've done a, a fair bit of work around looking at how charities market to people, for example, and, and how they really play on the emotion. And, you know, we, we get discussions around poverty porn and, and things like that. But for me, such a, it's been such a fast kind of emergence of people sharing information about child sex trafficking, which is an issue I've worked on for years. People that I would never, ever have thought would do that. What's been a bit mind-blowing about that is they would never, ever consider themselves conservatives or Trump supporters but this issue, because it's so deeply emotive and nobody wants to, you know, nobody wants to support or be seen to not be supporting anti-child sex trafficking, that they're willing to just blindly share. And I think that's so damaging. Yes. And again, that is one of the things that we also saw with, uh, you know, um, appeals to national security and uh, you know, anti-terrorism powers. If you're opposed to uh, you know, to expanding the government's anti-terrorism powers, then why are you pro-terrorism? If you're opposed to giving the government you know, unlimited power in order to stop child sex trafficking, then why do you hate children? Why do you want children to be abused? And this is, is simply allowing other people to frame the argument in such a way that argues against against civil liberties, against tools which help everyone, tools which empower everyone, which protect people with less power against the people with more power. And ultimately, I think in the in the case of this particular theory, position Trump as the savior for child sex trafficking. Oh yes, but this is not one of those issues where I would just single out Trump. 
The argument that you have to get rid of end-to-end encryption because end-to-end encrypted communications are being used by child sex traffickers is an argument which is used on both the right and the left. Yeah. And uh, this is one of the things that I find very disturbing. It's not a hallmark of Trumpists in the United States you will find uh, opposition to end-to-end encryption in the Democratic Party as well as in the Republican Party. Uh, and that's, that's really disturbing. And rather than just sort of tarring them all with the same brush, I think that the, the best thing to do is just, you know, keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on civil liberties. Keep your eye on, you know, who is likely to lose out if you lose the ability to have secure communications. And it's usually not the people who are in power. And it's usually not criminals because criminals will always find a way to do crime. It's the people who don't have a voice. It's the people who are already marginalized. Uh, Those are the people who suffer first. Absolutely. What is it about your work that you're most naturally drawn to and what do you find most challenging? Well, uh, I think the, the, the opportunity to stand up to bullies is really satisfying and to sort of level the playing field. I am very sensitive to you know, inequalities of power. And so being able to do something about that is really satisfying to me. And using that as the lens through which I see my work is, is useful because it keeps the work from being about me. It keeps it from being about whatever it is that gets me, you know, glory or on lists or, you know, on you know, covers of magazines or whatever. And it allows me to focus on the, the people who really need the empowerment and the people who need the help. Because you can't do this as a cult of personality. You can't do this as, as a single person. Uh, the only way to, to fight inequalities of power is uh, in a grassroots fashion for us to all do it together and not to let you know sort of cults of personality really like wrestle the leadership away from us and what's most challenging for you in your work (laughs) putting it down (laughs) yeah some part of my day that's not about sexual assault (laughs) i am not great at work-life balance and uh, while I, I can get on this podcast and I can tell everyone it's extremely important to have good work-life balance, let me tell you, I do not practice what I preach. I am extremely bad at this. And I imagine it's worse, it's worse for, for you and a lot of people like you through COVID, being, being at home all the time. It's easy to work all the time. Oh, yeah, because on one hand, you never come home from work. And on the other hand, you're, you know, never really start work. And so just you're in your office all day long. And on the other hand, prior to this, I traveled internationally 30% of the time. Same. And I, yeah. <laughs> I failed to understand just how much that was taking out on me. Um, Same. I think that's really interesting. I was, you know, last month, last year, I was away every single month internationally. I was saying to a friend, you know, a couple of months ago, this is the first time that I have been home this long since I had a newborn baby uh, in Australia. First, it was challenging, but now, like you, I'm realizing the toll that that travel takes. Just not being jet lagged all the time is a revelation. (laughs) It is, absolutely. Who is or has been your greatest influence on doing good? I'm going to credit James Baldwin on this one. Uh, And I went to a hippie high school and uh, the, the hippie teachers whom we called by their first names uh, made us read a lot of James Baldwin. 
And when I was a teenager, I didn't understand James Baldwin. So I read things like Black Boy. And uh, the thing that I wondered to myself was, why is this man so angry? This man sure is really, really mad about racial inequality. And I, I just don't see it as a middle-class white girl. He just seems really angry. And the older that I get, uh, the more I understand that James Baldwin was right that he saw inequalities that were invisible to me at the time, that they are everywhere, and that it's our job to fight them. I, I would also credit Toni Morrison, who uh, very famously said that if you are free, it's your job to free someone else. Uh, you have to lift other people up because we're, we're not free until everyone is free. And the work is never done. Uh, which is both empowering and depressing. But I think that that's sort of you know, activism in a nutshell. <laughs> and it sounds like the educational experience that you had really shaped that for you by exposing you to those ideas. I think it was a very useful educational experience, but that just at the time I was being exposed to it, I wasn't ready for it. I did not have the empathy to understand what my teachers were trying to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I eventually came around to it. Yeah, so job well done by your teachers. (laughs) Time for some philosophy. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? I think the biggest problem uh, that we have in our time is an understanding of uh, who the in-group and who the out-group is and that we have an increasingly narrow understanding of who the in-group is that we want to protect, of the people who are like us, of the people who deserve rights, the people who deserve freedoms, the people who deserve a comfortable life. Whereas uh, I think we are never going to get anywhere until we have a much broader conception of who deserves rights and respect and freedom until it really comes to encompass everyone, including the people for whom you have great difficulty feeling empathy, the people who are fundamentally opposed to the things that you believe in, even they deserve civil liberties and human rights. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it right now, what would it be? Given that a lot of people are in quarantine right now and uh, are sort of stuck inside their homes, uh, and like really turning inward, I would say it would be to slow down. You don't have to do everything at once. We are not going to be running out of time immediately. And if we spend all of our time rushing around, thinking about what we're going to do tomorrow, and with our you know, heads already buried in next week, it's very hard to, to appreciate the moment and also to, to make any kind of long-term changes because you're, you're never in, in the now and you never really understand what it is that the now needs. Definitely something I've learned over this period is the, the slowing down side. I think despite being, you know, in, in lockdown and isolation and three periods of quarantine and waiting testing and homeschooling as a single parent, I'm calmer than I've ever been. You know, and I think part of that has been a forced slowdown and realization and acceptance that I, there is no rush and I can't do it all. And so I just have to do my best. And, and by being a calmer person, I will actually get more done in the longer term. In a lot of ways, we've, uh, you know, 
capitalism encourages us to all buy into the product uh, to the cult of productivity that we're only worth what we produce and we're only worth the amount of work that we get done and that is the only thing of, of value about human beings and that is simply not the case that causes you to, you to ignore um, honestly nearly everything which is pleasant about the human condition uh, and getting away from the cult of productivity i think is remarkably difficult yeah it is it is yeah and and the the narrative that being stressed and busy means that you're successful because you're juggling all the things yes uh and and this is a lie you you don't have to do all the things you don't have to be stressed out you have to be strategic and we shouldn't all just be flocking each other to you know to constantly produce Tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now. This is a tough one, mostly because there are a lot of people doing interesting stuff. But uh, my colleague, Gillian York, is, uh, has just finished up a book, which she expects to be published in 2021, uh, called Silicon Values. I worked for Gillian for several years at the Electronic Frontier Foundation on uh, international censorship issues. And she was... You know, one of the very first people understanding the you know sort of scope of international censorship uh, among uh, platforms like Twitter and Facebook, especially in 2011 and 2012 during the Arab Spring, and she's been talking about these issues for longer than than just about anyone else that I know. And I think that her work is really vital as more and more of our communication ends up on these platforms, which are not controlled by us and which aren't necessarily controlled by a single country. So, you know, Facebook is its own country. Twitter is its own country. And figuring out how we're going to get any kind of accountability out of, uh, out of these platforms uh, is a very hard question. And Jillian is one of the people who's been thinking about it for longer than anyone else I know. I love that idea that social media platforms are their own country. It's fascinating. There's, there's a whole episode to be done on that. <laughs> Um, Eva, where is your favorite place on earth? Bilbao, Spain. <laughs> Why? Because it's incredibly beautiful. It has this modern art museum, but also has this medieval center. And coming from the United States and especially from the West Coast, I come from a place where there is no history, where you know, we, we have rebuilt this thing to look like it did 50 years ago. Uh, and it's so satisfying to be in a place where that just has layers and layers of history, but that hasn't calcified. Uh, and that's by far my, my favorite thing about Bilbao. What books are you reading at the moment? At any given time, I'm usually reading three books. I'm usually reading, reading something for work and a work of fiction and, uh, and a work of nonfiction. So I've just finished a book about the science of sleep in order to cajole myself into sleeping better. Ask me if that works. Uh, <laughs> it's aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> I have just finished rereading the first two books in uh, William Gibson's unfinished uh, sort of peripheral trilogy. Uh, so that's uh, The Peripheral and Agency, in which he is uh, sort of not just reimagining the future, but also really reimagining the present. And one of the things that William Gibson really brings to science fiction that I love is this notion that we were not prepared for the apocalypse to be this boring and we were not prepared for it to take this long. Wow. And so he's definitely looking at a world of, of slow, 
degradation rather than just a single event that you can point to and go, ah, there, there is the moment when the robots came and they blacked out the sky and other things from Terminator 2. This is not the apocalypse we're getting. We're getting this slow motion apocalypse and we're just mentally not equipped for it. Yeah, fascinating. Now, I'm also reading A Distant Mirror, which is about the Black Plague. Cheerful reading. This is- yep, sounds a bit like my lists. What about podcasts? I listen to a podcast called uh, Home Cooking, which is uh, Samir Nasrat. Uh, it's not Samir, uh, Samin, Samin Nasrat. And she is the author of a book called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And she is wonderful. And she and, and her partner in podcasting crime uh, spend the podcast talking about uh, the things that you can make out of your pantry out of the stuff that's already kind of lying around your house. So what happens when you have just like too many cans of chickpeas and what do you do with, you know, all, uh, all of that extra rice? Ah, I love this. Uh, so it's, it's sort of the opposite of the, of, of the food porn, which is all about how you go to a, uh, a specialist shop and you buy the highest quality whatevers and then you carefully craft them over a period. Yep. <laughs> your beautiful Instagrammable food. Uh, and instead it's just, how are, you, how are you going to feed yourself when what you have is like, you know, 10 pounds of spinach? Also particularly relevant, I know here in, in, in Victoria, Australia, we are only allowed to leave the house once a day, I mean, to shop. Um, and I think a lot of people are avoiding even that and trying to just do one shop a, a, a week, for example. And I think, yeah, it's really relevant being able to look in your pantry and say, oh, I can create something delicious out of this, not, oh, there's nothing to eat, when in fact there's so much to eat in there. Absolutely. And uh, I, I like the way that this particular podcast approaches, uh, approaches food from a much more kind of democratic angle. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to listen to that one. Eva, thank you so much for your time and sharing of your depth of experience and thoughts and opinions on a huge range of subjects. It's been eye-opening for me and I'm sure listeners will agree and wonder where we can find out more information on what you do. If you want more information about what I do, I recommend going to the Electronic Frontier Foundation's website. We are at www.eff.org. And if you are curious about how to protect yourself online, if you have questions about uh, online privacy and security, I recommend going to Surveillance Self-Defense, which you can get to at ssd.eff.org. And what about you? Are you on Twitter or anywhere else? I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm Evacide on Twitter, E-V-A-C-I-D-E. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen.
Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.